Welcome to The New Next, a podcast that addresses current events and how they will impact the future. Pope Francis visited Russia, or, well, he did a, a, a video conference to Russian youths. Mm-hmm. And um, it's very Pope Francis is interesting, I think, because um, it's he's maybe maybe he's becoming a little senile, but uh, he seems to really be advocating who we thought he was originally, advocating for youth and peace and stuff like that. Um, he, uh, but he got in trouble because. Um, especially by Ukraine for praising Russia's imperial past. So um, let's see if there's an actual quote. He, uh, he encouraged young Russians to be artisans of peace and so reconciliation in this winter war. Um, but he also said, never forget your inheritance. You are the heirs of the great Russia, the great Russia of the saints, of the kings, of the great Russia, of Peter the Great, of Catherine II, the great imperial Russia, cultivated with so many culture and humanity. Never forget this inheritance. You are the heirs of the great mother Russia. Go forward and thank you. Thank you for your way of being, for your way of being Russian. And people especially uh ukrainians got pissed because they expect or they're it's been being interpreted as it's <coughs> supporting nationalism and imperialism which they assume is the real cause of the war in ukraine and i have a entirely different um view of this so but i was kind of curious before before I project my view on this conversation, what you think about that? Uh, read the quote again. Never forget your inheritance, your heirs of the great Russia, the great Russia, of the saints of the Kings of the great Russia of Peter, the great of Catherine, the second, that great Imperial Russia cultivated with so much culture and he- humanity. Never forget this inheritance. You are the heirs of the great mother Russia. Go forward and thank you. Thank you for your way of being, for your way of being Russian. I mean, it can be taken a couple ways. I would use Pope Francis's history as my guideline um, for how he's responded to things in the past. Um, I believe he's been on record that he has said negative things towards Putin before. So, um, and, uh, you're you're a little slow, but um, I would look at the history of Pope Francis, and I believe he is on record in the past of being very critical of Putin. So I don't think um, it sounds almost like, hey, um, I understand you're going to. Um, trying to think of how this is best worded. (laughs) Um, Don't, don't like upstart the cart. um, Do what you can do what you can peacefully. Um, But Putin is not the way that Russia has been in the past. And remember the, remember some of these other people who um, the people he specifically mentioned are people that are known in the in the Russian Orthodox communities of being great people of faith, yeah. Um, regardless of their um, political authority, um, like I know some people would say, like um, Catherine in particular was a little bit um, totalitarian type mentality, but it, 
one of the things, I mean, the history of the Russian Orthodox Church up until the Bolshevik Revolution, the Russian people might have had issues with the um, the daily political stuff, but the the Christian the Christian kind of um, the religious side they were very comfortable with. They were considered very strong in many ways, and so they found out when um, specifically Christian missionaries were going out to Russia uh, during the times of Stalin and stuff. They found that there were still pockets of the church that were really strong into Orthodox kind of ties. And they were happy to have any um, Christian. So they were, they were very receptive to evangelical practices yeah. um, since that's where most missionaries were coming from at the time. Um, and they still had a lot of the um, history and the flavor of Russian Orthodoxy um, because part of the Bolshevik revolution was getting rid of any kind of church and any kind of worship of a, of a God. Um, so I, I'm thinking the Pope is kind of saying on the lines of, um, Hey, remember you guys are a Christian people. Like you have a heritage and and specifically the fact that he's pointing to every, to these leaders before the Bolshevik revolution is saying that, um, I mean, you, you have a long history before the previous hundred years, the previous 110 years where what was most Mm -hmm. important was, um, caring for your fellow Russian, caring for your fellow man, um, fellow woman. Um, and yeah, there's sometimes there's strong leadership and stuff, but that's ultimately who you are. The stuff that's happened over the past hundred years is just a blip in your history. Um, so comply, but comply in, I'd say malicious, but in peace, peaceful <laughs> maliciousness, um, you know, don't let what, um, Putin and his cronies are, pushing as what is true Russian um, when it's only less than a, it's just over a hundred years old for what that kind of Russian thinking. That's how, that's how I would take yeah. that statement um, and how I am taking that statement without any other context. Yeah. I think his main, main mistake was saying that great Imperial, that word Imperial um, because that's uh, just, but I, I'm I'm with you and I think I think the biggest the biggest concern that we have as western democracies right now is that Russians forget their past before the communist era. Mm-hmm. And you have you have Putin who I believe has publicly stated he wants to bring back that block. That's kind of his his goal in more of a, a white ethno Christian sort of thing. Um, he's, he's freaking popular now and you have a really strong youth movement, um, youth military movement in Russia that, Hey, it reminds me of the, the Nazi youth basically. So I really, I've really felt in recent years um, that Russia, we had it, we really blew an opportunity to bring them into the fold more. And I think we really messed up strategically on this whole um, Ukrainian war stuff. You know, it's not, I just, I think we took the wrong approach basically. And now you've allied lobbied all these or uh, basically got all these people to to align behind someone that I think really does reflect a lot of very difficult things that we don't want to see in terms of a leader in Russia. Um, So I just, it's, it's a, if people, you know, if people like, really reach back in their history and not just the sanitized history, but the, the real history that Pope Francis would have access to because the Vatican has the greatest archives in the world. So it just, if they really reached back and had that national identity around their creation of a country and stuff, I think Mm -hmm. the Republic of Russia and the United States would have 
a supreme amount of alignment and the UK too um, on their shared cultural history. And when we look at um, look at some of the leaders in the EU right now, they have cultural history related to Russia. So if you're going to find alignment on anything, it's going to be on your lineage and your family tree, where you come from, why you are what you are, why you believe what you are, right. beyond this warped uh, ethnocentrism and these weird, weird cultural groups these days. Like it's, it's a little confusing sometimes <laughs> to track why people are in these groups, but it's just, <clears throat> I, yeah, I think it's important. I think, um, one of the, one of the things that, and you, you mentioned it, um, like, there's buzzwords that America doesn't like the word imperial. We don't like the word empire, but that's not a shared reality among the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, in fact, um, <laughs> even in um, Christianity circles, Catholicism is considered kind of the evil empire and stuff. So we're, they're considered very much imperialistic and historically that would be accurate as well. Um, but I mean, we, we make movies and video games and TV stuff about how evil the empire is. Um, specifically star Wars is the highlight of that kind of thinking. Um, but historically speaking, that hasn't been a negative term, um, until, you know, around the 1750s and stuff when, um, a bunch of, (laughs) uh, people, you know, went overseas from Europe and (laughs) started enjoying aspects, um, that they didn't have to worry about as much. Um, and even then, and I, and I have mixed feelings because I know in my, my training as a theologian, um, we talk a lot about empire. We talk a lot about imperial thought type processes and stuff. Um, but I'm, I'm saying from, at least from the Pope's perspective, I'm saying, I don't think he's saying it theologically nearly, nearly as much as he's saying historically um, when he's saying empire and I understand, or imperial. And I understand that that still creates a negative reaction um, specifically in our Western culture. Um, I'm not sure if that causes as much of a stir in the rest of the Western culture, like the European West. Um, and ultimately I, I, at worst, <laughs> I mean, I, I would be interesting to see who the critics are. Like if it was a group of, if it was a group of people that, um, supported, um, like Reagan and Trump and that kind of mentality, because their whole thing is make America great again. And they're implying that there's a, a Mer- American imperialism that they're really trying to bring back and stuff when they felt the power was a certain way. Um, and I'm wondering if it's th- those same people that are supporting that or if it's more on the liberal side. Um, but then the liberal side is always going to have that negative connotation with the church, um, specifically the Roman Catholic Church, because um, even though now it's a more um, accepted joke of talking about priests with children and stuff, that started off the left and slowly made its way to the right um, of saying that everybody can make that joke. Um, but it's not, I mean, there's still a lot of Catholics in America, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. I, and I, I, um, and they still bring their kids through despite all the, the atrocities that have happened in that regard. And I'm, I'm not making light of anything the Catholic church has done that has been evil. Um, but it is an imperial entity though. Yeah. And I mean, in many ways, that's, you know, I'd, I'd want to see who the critics were and I'd want to look up a little bit about where their thinking is because, um, to me, America, or when I say America, United States of America is very imperialistic, even though we're not necessarily imperial. If we could be more imperial, we would definitely do it. 
Um, but we've done the thing of like where we we pretend that we're friends with different countries and different um, territories and stuff but really we've kind of been like no it's our way or the highway Um, we see this most specifically over the past 20 years in Afghanistan we've Mm -hmm. seen it um, in Pakistan um, and some uh, just the whole fight And, and I'm not arguing for or against any of the presidents the four presidents yeah, that we've had this um, this century, but the the thing for every single one of the presidents has been: what do we do with the troops in Pakistan? What do we do with the troops in Afghanistan? What do we do with the troops in Iraq? And um, we, I mean, most of our military is not central to the United States; like they're all across the world. Yeah. So even though we pretend that we're not imperialistic. We're very much imperialistic. I mean, <laughs> well, and there's um, a lot of a lot of people pushing to expand NATO to a global, down, uh, global alliance, like all are not North Atlantic anymore, but places like Africa and stuff like that also. Right, and I and I, I think that's. I get why imperial sounds negative. Um, and I, and I think I would say this even for Putin, like I want to see, unless I have a specific reason to think negative, Pope Francis has already been, um, very, um, controversial for the Catholic, right? Um, they're not, I mean, people are still kind of figuring out like, how did he get to be Pope? Because, (laughs) um, that's a long story. Yeah, well, but how how different he was from um, Joseph Ratzinger, the the um, Pope uh, Benedict. You know, um, the stories are completely different, um, and even uh, Pope John Paul, like he's more in the line of that. But he's also um, the fact that he took Pope Francis as his name. Like, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that really riled up Catholics. Yeah, and um, as someone who <laughs> my denomination has quickly become more and more right-leaning uh, or the denomination I, I grew up with. Um, but the people that taught me were more centrist to the left um, when it comes to political side of stuff. And they, they really welcomed a Pope like Pope Francis. I mean, yeah. he's the first one to um, truly, he, he, Support is such a weird word, and I and I and I, and I know this might be a longer um, thing than what you were planning on this specific part, Mm-mm. but um, I have lots of friends uh, who have done really stupid things, and I don't support doing stupid things, but I support my friends. Yeah, um, I I do a lot of stupid things, and I've had a wife of twenty years who somehow puts up with those things. Um, um, I have a daughter who is a teenager who does very teenager like things. Um, and she's still enough in the grounds where we give guidelines and stuff and support and you have kids and you give guidelines and support, but they're still going to do stupid things that like, why, like why, Mm -hmm. um, we don't support the negative actions that they might take or what we call negative actions, but we support the kids. We support, um, those who don't continually cause us injury and cause us harm, um, are perceived injury, perceived harm, because that's a whole other (laughs) bag of worms. But, you know, when we know that someone's treating us bad, um, and we have an actualization, we do things to remove ourselves from those situations, um, one way or another. Um, the Pope, the current Pope has loosened up a lot of rigorous understandings of what it means to be Catholic in his short time as Pope. Yeah. And, um, he's, uh, he's, he's not necessarily LGBTQIA affirming, but he's like, we need to love them as humans first, and then yeah. we can worry about the things that are sinful. Which um, seems like a totally moderate, if if not extreme for for some people like yeah but you. he's also still 100% that 
um, <laughs> uh, priests and stuff shouldn't be allowed to get married. Yeah. And, um, and he, and from my understanding is even though for the common person, it's fine to be gay or whatever for a priest, it's not, <laughs> yeah. I might be wrong on that one. I haven't kept up as much on that. Um, he also is the first Pope in a long time. And we're talking about 60, 70 years who has literally gone out of his little Pope mobile and touched people with sicknesses and stuff. Yeah. Um, and that might not, again, I don't, I don't know what the average listener, like what that means to them, but that's a big deal. Pope is a Pope is like a King. It's like a, um, someone who is automatically quarantined from regular life because they are so important. They can't be afford to be sick. They can't afford to have things, but to go and spend time with people who have AIDS to go and spend, uh, like quality time, like hugging and, um, you know, loving them and touching people with different skin diseases and stuff that, um, in my world, the world I grew up in, there's a lot of, um, reminiscences of like, this is the kind of person that I believe Jesus was that he went to, um, those who are ailing and brought them comfort. Um, now do I agree with the Pope on everything? Absolutely not. (laughs) Um, theologically, politically, not everything. So I want to give a little bit of grace to this Pope specifically for the way that he has conducted himself and literally from right out of the gates by giving himself the name Francis, which says, um, I abandon, I mean, the history of St. Francis of Assisi is that I give up everything I have of riches to be with the, to be with those who, um, experience God the least. And, um, and I believe for the most part, as much as can be done without like a complete, um, reversal of the whole system. I believe that Pope Francis has demonstrated many times consistently that he is truly trying to look out for, um, the, um, for the, the people at large as a whole. And, um, and I'm not, again, I don't agree with everything he said or done, but overall, I think that he's, he really is struggling and trying to lead, um, the Roman Catholic church in a way that um, is befitting of how he believes God wants them to be. And, and, and he's yeah. like, he's in Mongolia right now, you know, to prove your point. And he's meeting with, he's there because China an adjacent country is basically cracking down on all religious minorities. So I just pulled out, he was, this was posted a day ago, but he was joined by Mongolian shamans, Buddhist monks, and Russian Orthodox, uh, you know, um, people and evangelicals all in the same thing, worshiping together. He recently met with the head of the Eastern Orthodox church. Um, so it's just, uh, it's just very, yeah, like there's a lot of baggage in his, his time in, uh, South America, what happened under his, his rule and stuff. So when, when Ratzinger, um, was Pope Benedict, correct? Joseph yeah. Ratzinger. So mm-hmm. when, when Ratzinger, Joey Ratz is what I like to call yeah, him. Joey Ratz. When Joey Ratz was around, he it it was kind of on there's two two schools of thought was one that he was really going after the child abuse stuff and that's why he kind of got stifled and another that he was there just kind of as a pass through but um i don't know like seeing to your point seeing Pope Francis in his new Pope mobile, which is a wheelchair, but without any protection, mixing with people that have no clue who he is in the country, Mongolia, which I believe has the smallest Catholic population in the world. Hmm. It's, it's very hopeful. And that's what, you know, like we probably, we will have to have a talk on, 
the image of Jesus and the ideology of Jesus, like who that means to you someday and stuff. But, you know, like for me, um, if I'm going to take Jesus as a metaphor of how we should act on a day-to-day life, it's selfless service and loving everybody, you know, despite who they are, um, outside of this me versus you and also the authenticity to allow people to have their own faith and belief. And I mean, Pope Francis is really, he's, you know, metaphorically killing it right now. Like I think as he's, as he's got more, as he's got sicker in his body, his heart seems to be radiating more than I've ever seen. And I just really, I'm hopeful for it. He comes from a specific tradition from South America of a lot of priests who, um, I believe this is Colombia, but I'd have to go back and look to make sure. Argentina. Um, Oh, no, no. I mean, the the country of this other priest. um, Yeah. I believe it's Colombia, but Romero. Yeah. And there's a, in fact, uh, Raul Julia, um, before he did... um, I think it was before he did Adam's family uh, might've been after, but he actually played in a movie called Romero and um, the closest saint that um, um, he, uh, he was very much one of those guys who was looking the other way when a lot of like a lot of government military type stuff was going on. And um, then he realized like he came to a realization that that's not what his job is. So he started preaching nonviolence, um, kind of in the spirit of Gandhi, Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. um, of that kind of stuff. And it was causing enough problems with the political officials that Romero, Romero was shot um, and killed, like massacred. Um, yeah. In fact, it's in March every year. Um, there's a Romero week um, in the Catholic Church. And a lot of the churches here in Oklahoma City actually um, participate by giving um, like doing a food drive and going out to the various sections of homelessness and stuff and trying to make sure there's food available. Um, and one of my friends who um, is like a big, or he, in the past he was, he was one of the ones who definitely ran a lot of that for here in Oklahoma city. And I think there's something about coming from that area of the world, South America that, or the, or central and South America that, um, like we, we, we have it so nice up here in the United States. Yeah. And um, we forget how difficult it is to stand up to do the right thing when there isn't freedom. You know, yeah. <laughs> we have freedom to do a lot of stuff out here. And so we, there might be evil and stuff, but this is evil that has been freely chosen. Um, we're not worried about our daughters being kidnapped for, I, I shouldn't say this, like we don't care at all to the extent of what we care about and how, how often it happens, like sex trafficking from our daughters, um, being drug cartel type stuff happening everywhere all the time. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, or being lot of gay, stuff. just being gay yeah. in Mexico. Yeah. You I mean, it's, it's still really negative for most of the world. And if you think about the fact that the Catholic church is not a white church and has never been a white church, um, except in North America, then it might give a little bit more perspective of how radical Francis is (laughs) on a lot of what he's doing and stuff. Um, Or maybe I shouldn't say radical. I should say reactionary um, for, for the Catholic reactionary, but um, yeah, it, the, the, we've had a problem. I know since he's been elected or voted in as Pope, which is elected, but um the the religious right in America has had a problem with him more so than any Pope we've had since John Paul and really um, since uh, Pope John the fourth back in the 1950s, when he said, when um, the Vatican II council met and said mm-hmm. um, services don't have to be done in Latin only anymore. And um, not that the right religious right in America has ever liked Catholic church, but we've had more <laughs> they've had more of a vehemence and uh, mean spirit towards 
Francis, like Ratzinger, they actually kind of liked a little bit because he seemed to play by the American rules <laughs> a little <laughs> bit more. But so, yeah, that's my that's my thoughts on Russia with the Pope. <laughs> yeah. Well, I like part of the reason I find this really interesting too is uh, in relation to the first Crimean War which was fought between 1853 and 1856 between Russia and an alliance of the Ottoman Empire, France, United Kingdom, and Sardinia. So um, it really, the flashpoint was over the disagreement of the right of Christian minorities in Palestine, kind of like we're really dealing with right now. That was uh, part of the Ottoman Empire at the time which with the French promoting the rights of the Roman Catholics and the Russia promoting those of the Eastern Eastern Orthodox church. Mm -hmm. So both the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox church got together um, and uh, worked out their differences with the Ottomans came to an agreement, but the uh, French emperor Napoleon the third and Tsar Nicholas the first refused to abide by that and went to war. So, um, it was, you know, Russia went out, they expanded, they, uh, basically it was in Crimea, the North Caucasus, Balkans, Black Sea, Baltic Sea, White Sea, Far East. But what they really lost was that, uh, Danube river Delta, um, that basically flows through Romania. It's a huge shipping lane and stuff too. And mm-hmm. uh, Dimpro river going through Ukraine, very similar thing. So you really have, it, it all flows in the same sea, right? It was just, right. so it's pretty much the same playing field, similar countries. And really a, you have the Eastern Orthodox, um, the head of the Eastern Orthodox church, which hasn't been Putin's favorite person because he's been calling for an end of the killing. Pope Francis appears to be pro Ukraine, but anti war. And it's just, it's, it's a total fricking repeat of, of history. You know, I think Francis specifically is, um, he he isn't he overall he he advocates for nonviolence. That's a consistent trait for him, um, and he is very much anti-Putin. I don't know if that's so much that he's pro-Ukraine as he is anti-Putin. Um, but one of the best ways to speak out against Putin without seeming like you're speaking out against Putin yeah. is to be pro-Ukraine. So, um, yeah, I mean. And that, and the fact that the stuff that you're pointing out is also stuff that I'm guessing most people don't think about is we're talking about stuff way before um, the Bolshevik Revolution and stuff with Lenin coming into power, and that's, I mean, Russia was not a nice place, you know. I mean, it's never been really a nice place. Uh, um, it's so um, big. It's so yeah, different. It's so huge. Saint Peter, and, Saint Petersburg, and uh, Moscow are very different than a lot of the um, regions. And it's, yeah, it's uh, it's weird. I mean, it's it's weird. There's, and ultimately, I mean, I guess if you look historically, there aren't any Catholics in Russia ever. Yeah. Like, you have pockets at best, maybe some missionaries that have gone in there a couple times type thing, but um, Russia has never been a Catholic place. Um, if you, um, we don't spend as much time, like I will say in church history, when I took the courses, we didn't spend a whole lot on Russian Orthodoxy because of how it broke, broke up and stuff. Yeah. Um, it followed Eastern Orthodoxy and then it took it to a much different level. Um, but the, um, the things that came out of Eastern Orthodoxy weren't as sexy as what came out of Roman Catholicism. And then later the Protestants 
Um, and that's one reason why we probably didn't cover it as much because it was more of like, oh yeah, it's over there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and more totally. or less they, they worship the same way, um, you know, 200 years later, 400 years later as they did, um, you know, when the Protestant revolution happened, when, um, um, when Roman, you know, when the great schism in 1252, um, you know, Russians more or less worship the same way from 1252 till, to the early 1900s. <laughs> yeah. So it's, um, uh, it's kind of forgotten. And, and I know there's my church, one of my church history professors will listen to this and be like, Oh my goodness, Mike, did you not pay attention to church history? Like, no, I paid attention, sir. You just didn't teach it. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. 1252. I, I got to do a little more update on that year. Cause I, I was re- reading about the schism a while back and, um, it's wasn't a part of it based off of basically disagreements. Uh, yeah. So are, I studied more around the military theolog- disagreements. I studied more of the theological reasons of the great schism. Um, but I, I mean, I already know the way the world works. We rarely break up because of, um, a thought. Um, it's always <laughs> actions. Yeah. Um, even, I mean, I'm going to come back to this. I'm, I'm pulling this around to show just kind of an example. Um, so Martin Luther, um, everybody knows about the Protestant Reformation and the 95 theses. But what a lot of people forget is he had published, and I I want to say it was just a month or two before the 95 theses, but it might have been as much as a year. But he, he did the exact same thing with 90 theses. And the 90 theses were theological theses. They mm-hmm. were like, this is what we believe that is not consistent with the Bible. And they were, they were strong, yeah. like disagreements and no one cared. So what the 95 theses, and even though this is funny because most people think the 95 theses are theological, they're 100% practical things that were happening in the Catholic church at the time. And so he criticized the practices as opposed to the theories and the theology behind yeah. the practices. And that's what pissed off the Catholic church. And that's what put a mark on his head, you know? Um, um, and what's even crazier. And, and they show this in the movie Luther and most people thought maybe that it was kind of um, theatrics, but uh, they did strongly consider him to be the Pope to replace the Pope that died when they were chasing him. Um, and they're like, then they found out he was married and they're like, Nope. Huh. <laughs> um, well, so I completely agree that 1252, the great schism was probably because of something like military, but the official reason was the fact that they, um, that their Catholics wanted to really push Latin as being the major language, as opposed to, um, um, using the actual Greek and Hebrew and stuff. Yeah because the well, Vulgate had become one of the major ways to understand scripture. It's, it's, it's interesting that you brought up Martin Luther too, because one of the things I don't think is really talked about these days, obviously we like to hold him and hold religious figures in great esteem is the fact how militant Luther was about it. Oh like yeah. Him yeah. and his followers were killing people and well, all this stuff, you know. No, no. Luther Luther's followers weren't killing people as much as um uh there was another so there's like six revolutions that all happened like back to back and Luther was in talks with um the uh it's not Calvin Zwingli, um, who was very close to the Calvin Calvinistic revolution, and Calvin mm-hmm. was not necessarily for violence, but he wasn't against it. But Zwingli was like, kill anybody that thinks differently than us. (laughs) Luther was never about killing um, specifically. Um, And Luther, like the only reason why Luther is around, like why we have Lutheranism now is because he had a prince that was willing to patronize him um, and protect him. Um, The, not Calvin, but the Calvinist and the Zwinglians, um, they were, they were willing to fight fire with fire. Um, so if the Roman Catholics were going to kill them, they're going to kill them right back. Mm-hmm. Um, all in the name of, um, how to worship a God of peace and love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know, so um, funny. 
And then specifically Calvin's followers became a lot more militaristic because um, Calvin was more interested in writing up doctrine than he was in taking actual action. So Philip Melanchthon, who um, they say like um, my, my his church, my first church history professor always said like um, St. Augustine was to the apostle Paul uh, or Philip McLinkton was to John Calvin, what St. Augustine was to the Apostle Paul, uh, meaning that we pretty much understand everything about Paul from St. Augustine. And we've taken years to like, have to go like, Oh, maybe he was wrong about some stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and so a lot of the stuff we understand about Calvin is um, because of Philip McLinkton. And then it's like, Oh, wait, that wasn't Calvin. That was actually Melanchthon. Um, <laughs> Cause Melanchthon wanted Calvin to be the next um, King. And so, and you can only be, I mean, let's be fair. There's only two ways to become King in any society, um, either through bloodline or through killing or through killing of blood, you know, shedding of blood. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, you know, like we'll talk about my lineage sometime, but some of those people were, they were the ones that were involved in moving, uh, basically the head of the Pope to France. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That that stuff. Is, so I mean, that we had was two, whole period. two or three. I know there's. We definitely had two popes at one time, and there were competing popes. I think we might have had third one, but that one got killed off really quickly. Um, like, like this, it's a. It's I, I a, think there might have been a time that we had like seven popes, but there was um, like two that were legit, and then yeah. I mean, I probably should have said that there's like two or three popes that were legitimate like people were considering them legitimate and it was like between those three there was yeah there was definitely that it was the same time as the seven popes um, so so did you say uh malakoth earlier i didn't okay never mind i i must have thought it um yeah i i just wanted to run through this uh crimean war real quick because okay. like i pulled up the uh wikipedia on it and <laughs> the parallels are amazing like you know, so we talked about disagreement over the treatment of certain minorities, which mm-hmm. that, you know, a lot of the disagreement in this current thing is over uh, the Donbass region, the Russian ethnic people there, that the Russian Christians, and a disagreement with the. Um, non-Russian Christians, more Ukrainian side. Um, but, uh, and the fact that both East and West came together religiously, but the leaders of the countries weren't down with that. Um, let's see. Uh, but the fights on the black sea. And I think this is very interesting because back then Russia's main naval base in the Black Sea, Sevastopol in Crimea, where they now have their uh, um, Russian naval fleet, their Black Sea fleet again after taking back Crimea. Um, They had, uh, yeah, so it's basically, it's kind of like almost an inverse of back then. So, um, you know, back then it was over Russian expansionism. Now it's over NATO expansionism and Russian aggression. (laughs) Right. Right. And, uh, you had a naval blockade on uh, Sevastopol and that area. And now you have basically Russia having a naval blockade on, you know, the shipping lanes. Um, so it's basically kind of an inverse of that. Um, and then it's also, it was a pivot point too, where you had the first really technological expansion where it was kind of a step change in war, new technologies, uh, naval shells. So like a true naval war, you know, no cannons and stuff like that anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, railroads, I think I said, um, but, uh, it was a different thing. And now you see us coming in where 
it's we're using world war one or world war two guns at at times some of the guns that they've been using are crazy they're like almost 100 years old yeah <laughs> and they're putting out the field but then you have this new war with drones that's accelerating big time and that's a huge technological thing so like the other day i was um reading an interview and it was basically up until this war i never had to look up because you know if you have big shells or airplane coming in you're going to hear that but you always have to look up now because you're not necessarily fighting people face to face you got to look out for these small drones that are dropping basically explosives and that's something that al-qaeda um really was the first one to really bring in back in like 2015 2016 rigging you know explosive like grenades and stuff like that that they could Mm -hmm. just drop so it's just a it's very yeah very similar um so and then there's also a lot of people like back then austria um Austria was worried about getting invaded by Russia and was Austria the Habsburgs so they okay. didn't back the west and the United Kingdom and that's really you know you wonder how far you go into that but if you're talking about Habsburgs versus Rothschilds that might be an interesting thing to see whether or not that's true also a lot of the campaigns around the rivers, um, the battle of over Crimea, like, you know, it's, and winter, um, winter's been a big player in this war. <coughs> we saw last year that, you know, it was kind of like one of her things that when the freeze subsides and the ground firms that the spring offensive, right. Right. Would come in, but it's, it's just, it's very similar. And you have to think that Stevastopol will be potentially, um, whether it's that or down by Kirsten or something, eventually there's going to be a naval battle. So um, you also have the Azov Sea campaign. You know the Azov uh, regime now, which are uh, fighters for Ukrainians. It's oh, this is crazy. There's just so much here. Um, but e- even, you know, casualties. So Russia lost 450,000 people, <coughs> 74,000 in combat, 375,000 in non combat. Um, the, uh, Alliance between Ottoman Empire, France, United Kingdom, Sardinia, 165,363 dead. So I'd say that you approximately flip that around. You run this war back to 2014, where it's really been going on um, since they had, uh, shoot, what was that peace agreement that nobody followed? Um, The ceasefire agreement. (laughs) I don't remember. Um, but, uh, yeah, you have, I mean, Ukraine's surely had 400 plus thousand people die. I think the count that the Pentagon says is 150,000. 
that is total bullshit, frankly. You know, uh, I saw anywhere last week that between 1,000 to 4,000 Ukrainian soldiers were killed in seven days. And that's just insane, you know? It's so... I'd say, including civilians from 2014, you're looking at nearing a million people that have died. Yeah. Um, and some of those have died out of the country too. And that's, that's crazy. So it's, you know, even their fight over the Danube Delta, very similar. Um, it's crazy. So it's just, it's basically an inverse. And I, I mean, it's, I don't think that we're in a good position. And, you know, like what I've advocated before um, to people that actually have the ability to do something about it is best case scenario is that <clears throat> you have essentially a stalemate like a, like you have on the Koreas and uh, you develop the gas in that country, the oil and gas deposits, mm -hmm. you use that to rebuild the country um, because it's just Russia's not going to go away. And frankly, they're in a better position than us. There's a lot of, basically have lost an entire generation of men, if not multiple generations. Um, a lot of people have permanently wounded and we're talking about multiple Vietnam's worth of people, you know, think about what Vietnam, the struggles that we had in America. Um, you know, I, I think I've talked about, uh, one of my, f um, coworkers slash friends, um, back at the boat shop back in the day, Mark that had rid, ridden the rails for ever since the Vietnam war, um, until he started working at the boat shop and it was, it was just such a struggle. You, you, you can't, it's just like, we're going to be dealing with this for 30 or 40 years. Right. And, and, what we see in a lot of these countries too, is that you prime these people to be terrorists when they give their life for their country and are left holding the bag personally and their family picking up the pieces. They have a tendency to latch on to things that you didn't want to in the first place. And you're destroying land. You're fighting over land by destroying it. It, and destroying the people that live on it. So um, there's deep cultural issues there that we do not understand. There's yeah. a lot of people in the U S that are of Ukrainian descent, but don't understand anything about the cultural background to it. It's just kind of like, you know, Victoria Newland's a perfect example. She's, I believe Ukrainian descent. And if you look at uh, disastrous foreign policy, you know, Niger um, right now is a good example. The Sahal region, that whole place, <coughs> she's architected the policy down there and it's all blown up in our face. And uh, it's not, it's not, it's just not there's not a lot of way that you can get out of it looking good now. And, um, you have to think that all these countries that like the first Crimean war, it seems that most people do not want war to exist. But when you come out against it, you're called a Putin apologist or, you know, all these words. And it's just people are afraid to speak what they say anymore. 
and there's at least in the eu there's real uh implications for sharing your mind mm -hmm. and i would say uh good luck getting a job in the military industrial complex here if you're going to stand up against it too so it's just this thing has been I know for the last decade, um, when you go into training for, uh, officer training and stuff, um, for entering the military, they've basically said within the next 15 years, we'll be going to war with Iran, Russia, and China, you know, and it's just, that's been the plan for forever. And, it's not working out what you're seeing in some of our biggest long-term allies like Saudi Arabia fleeing and making alliances with people that they can just have economic relationships with, even though they disagree with stuff. Um, so I, we talked a little bit about imperialism earlier, and I think the imperialism and the kingship, stuff is going away because look what's happening, you know? Right. So, uh, and it's a lot of, I mean, toxic mass masculinity that's driving this stuff. Uh, when you just look at, uh, I'd say in Europe, there's two distinct groups, um, that a lot of the leadership comes out from. There's, uh, a very popular woman's, uh, support group that really tries to mentor a lot of women to get in pop, uh, politics there. A lot of members of, uh, in the EU that I, um, that at least I follow have been come out of, or been associated with this group. I find it to be a positive thing. Um, on the other side, there's the world economic forum and a lot of people that are high up in there, or um or very affiliated for a long time including prince charles is very tied into that stuff that's a lot of your old guard of men that want to control everything basically projecting their ideological beliefs on everybody else so i mean hopefully hopefully the women are able to rein that back in control a little bit but it's just at some point we got to get beyond just going out and trying to project ourselves on people and being right. prepared for wars that may not ever be there. There's a dominant ideology in Washington and, um, in the ideological military state that if we don't do it, someone else will do it. And that's why we have uh, nuclear weapons. Um, that's why we, uh, you know, the V2 rocket program came out of, uh, you know, basically us importing a bunch of Nazi scientists here to continue doing their work. And we're kind of paying for that now I'd say. So, um, it's just, it's some wild stuff, but we, we keep repeating history and eventually I think, um, we have to take a little bit more control over our future and really figure out some way to do something besides this. So, yeah. you know, like I, I'm a huge advocate of defensive cybersecurity. You know, the United States is very good at offensive cybersecurity, but our defensive cybersecurity sucks. You could take those military dollars and reallocate them to still military beneficial items, but protecting infrastructure and stuff like that. At the same time, you're giving people jobs. And it's not this thing that we give people jobs by creating weapons of war. 
So I just really, I, I hope we kind of transition to this place where we can still defend ourselves, but take a different approach that it's not, the goal isn't purely killing people or like we see, we've seen in recent years, uh, building ships and competing projects where the ship is not battle worthy. Um, just because you don't want to lose the jobs in like Newport news, Virginia or something. So even though when the ship is built, you're going to scrap the entire thing. Like it's just, it doesn't make any sense. So, mm -hmm.